0: Our sermon today will be taken from John chapter 14, verse 1 to 14. This is the word of God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going? Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than those, then this will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. That says the Lord.
1: Thank you, Albert. I'm just here to... Introduce our special guest for this morning, Dr. Edward Klink, also known as Mickey Klink. Um, Dr. Edward Klink did his uh, PhD in New Testaments in the University of St. Andrews. He's also the author of many books on the Gospel of John, including a commentary on John's Gospel, the commentary that we've been using. Also, um, I have had the privilege of knowing Dr. Klink from since I was an undergrad back in Biola University. He was my professor there. And I've um, been privileged enough to listen to his lectures, been really shaped by him, not just from his teaching, but also by his moral example. I'm amazed, and it's a bit surreal that he's here now in this church. We've been praying for the possibility of this church plan since at least 2010, I think. And it's been amazing to learn from him, also amazing to learn from his example. He's always pushed us to think about the relationship between the church and, and deep theological thinking, and hopefully as well he would teach us in this coming week. So please, Dr. Klink.
2: Good morning. It's great to be with you. I got off a plane at 5 a.m. this morning from uh, the city of Chicago where the snow just melted. It's a little warmer here, but it is a pleasure to be with you. I shared uh, several in my church, my elders Knew uh, I was coming here, but I shared on Sunday last week where well, we're 12 hours behind you. So 12 hours from right now, your brothers and sisters in Christ in the Chicago area will be singing similar songs. It's just think about—it's just amazing to think about it. As, as literally as the as the earth is turning, every hour, new people of God, those children of God, that same one family are wi- rising up and singing praises to Him for an entire day, worshiping and gathering in Christ's name. So, But I shared with the church uh, on Sunday, last Sunday, I would, I would be gone for a couple of weeks and that I would be speaking to you. And I think there were about seven or eight people in my congregation that have been specifically to Jakarta, that have, have some connection to Indonesia, that just wrote me notes of encouragement or, or praying. And just I just know that our congregation, as they gather in the next, literally in about 12 hours, we'll be, we'll be worshiping the same Lord that we worshiped. Let me, just, let me just pray and ask God to minister from his word this morning. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us through Jesus Christ. And thank you just for the liturgy we've already gone through this morning and, and what you've already been showing us about your son Jesus Christ, as we've seen in the book of Isaiah and other places. Help us to see clearly in the gospel of John and this text in John 14, the centrality of Jesus. We pray all that in his name. Amen. I remember when my, my, I have three kids, 13, 11, both boys and an almost 7-year-old little girl. And I remember my oldest son was going to first grade for the first time. He was really, really nervous. And I, we literally, we, we walked into school. We were living in California. at the time, so We just walked. It was about a half-mile walk down to school. We walked him there. My wife, for whatever reason, couldn't be there that morning. And so we, I walked him up to the door. And he just kind of, he takes a couple steps forward. We'd been there the night before to see the classroom and meet his teacher. would be so nervous. And he took a couple steps forward and he turned around and he walks back. And he just kind of had his head in my knee. And he kind of looked up and says, Dad, I'm a little nervous. And I just realized, I just, I just, I just had a moment. I just kind of knelt down and I just kind of grabbed his face. And I just gave him a couple thoughts. Here's what you're going to do. Here's your teacher. Here's what school's about. Mom is going to pick you up right after school is over. Like, I just had a few final words with him before he walked into that school building, just to give him a little bit of encouragement, a little bit of focus, a little bit of preparation for what was going to come. We're in that scene, literally, in the Gospel of John, where Jesus, at the end of his ministry, sits with his disciples, explains to the church the Christian life. We call this the farewell discourse this 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 title that's given to chapters 14 15 and 16 in the gospel of john but you know what that really is is jesus saying hey i don't want you to be confused about anything i want you to know what's going on i want you to understand what my ministry is about i want you to see how this fits into the larger message i've been preaching from the beginning i don't want you to worry i don't want you to be surprised like in these in these three chapters he talks about the suffering and persecution that will come from the world He talks about the spirit that will be coming and what the spirit does. We'll talk about some of that even next Sunday. He talks about what Jesus is here to do and who he is. And he begins in this statement that was just read for you a few minutes ago when he describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. So in this section of of John 14 to 16, Jesus gives six final statements. And the first of those two we'll look at this Sunday and next. And in this first statement, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I'm not going to start telling you about persecution. I'm not going to start telling you even, even about what's going to come after my departure. I'm going to start telling you about me. I'm going to make sure that you know everything that's about to happen, everything that's been happening, and everything that will be is connected to who I am, my person, and my work. So I hope you can get a sense of the magnitude of this scene as Jesus before his departure and the completion of his earthly ministry instructs the church, you and me even, what it means to be a Christian. In fact, I would almost want to say that John 14, 15, and 16 might be one of the best summaries of the Christian life and the life of the disciple anywhere in the Bible. So I've broken up our text into three parts The the first would be verses 1 to 4. And I summarize what verses 1 to 4 are saying in this way When we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we trust in his purpose, his person, and his plans. Look at the opening statement. Jesus starts his opening phrase. It's almost like what I said to my little first grader several years ago Let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God. Believe also in me. That that verb, hearts be troubled, language, maybe in some, I'm using the ESV. Some translations refer to it as, translate the word as frightened. Jesus is addressing their inner person, thinking of them from their perspective, which is an interesting moment. You get a glimpse on how Jesus works. As much as he's going to ground their hope in his person and from his perspective, he's not unaware of what they are feeling or experiencing. But he doesn't comfort them just from what they're, well, you're going to do fine. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do fine and you'll be fine because of me. He wants them to believe in him. He addresses them from their perspective, but he does not comfort them from their perspective. He comforts them from his. In place of fear, Jesus commands the disciples to replace their fear with a trust in him, in his person and his work. This dual belief right there in verse 1, believe in God, believe also in me. This dual belief and this God-Jesus connection makes a clear statement that everything God would ever want to do, he does through Jesus Christ. But Jesus doesn't exhort them only to trust in his person, what you see in verse 1. He also exhorts them, commands them to trust in his plans. Jesus shares the inheritance that belongs to the children of God, heirs of the presence of God. The focus here, and look at verse 2, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going, the focus in these verses is less on the place, even though I know it. Often we often go there. Even the word, even even the word rooms, often translated in the Latin Vulgate as mansions, and maybe even depictions of these heavenly mansions and golden streets. If you're kind of tracing verses two through four, Jesus is not talking about the the the, the place as much. He's focusing on the person of God. Whose house is it? It's the Father's house. It's the Father's. Even the statement in verses 2 through 4, as important as Christmas is for the church, the dwelling of God, please see how verses 2 through 4 are talking about the full presence of God to come at the end of the biblical story, at the new creation. Christmas is so important to this God-dwelling, Emmanuel, Christ arriving. But this text promises its total fulfillment that one day we will fully dwell with the people of God. I told my church last Sunday that I'd be meeting brothers and sisters in Christ who they have never met. But one day, one day, all of us will not be worshiping 12 hours apart, and at least for me, a 21 hours time and an air to get here. We will all be gathered as one people of God, singing praises to the slain lamb who sits on the throne. What a glorious worship service that will be. Like that's what this text is pointing to, the fulfillment of this taking place. Christ is wanting us to trust his plans, but this plan requires his departure. I could just see it on my first grader's face years ago, my oldest son. He wanted me to go to first grade with him so bad. Dad, can't you just come in? You just sit right next to me, Dad? I'm a little nervous. You can imagine the disciples having similar feelings. How is it good that you're leaving Jesus? Like, shouldn't we we want to be with you and relate through you and, and know the Father through you? Like, how is it better in any way that you're gone? Jesus will get to that. But Jesus is saying, trust me and trust my plans. Jesus is not merely going to prepare a place. His going is the preparation. The fact, there's language of going that you see here. The, end of verse 4, where I am going. This, this language of going becomes almost a technical term in John for the mission of Christ. This mission of Jesus that sent from the Father to the, to the world, this incarnation, the, the, the ministry, the life of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, even the ascension of Christ is all part of, the, of his mission. It would have been incomplete had he stopped and said, you're right, I'd rather just stay worshiping with you. I think I will forego the ascension part. That would have have been catastrophic in regard to the fullness of what God wanted us to know in the life of Christ through the Spirit in relation to the Father. If that's confusing even for you, just, just listen the next few weeks as your church works through this Farewell discourse in John 14 through 16, or even as we'll have time to talk, sounds like on Thursday, what is the role of the ascension? Why is it a big deal? Why do Christians kind of always stop at the resurrection? And then they say, oh yeah, there's an ascension too. What, what Are they of equal importance? Yes, they are. The goal of Jesus' mission is the new creation. And his departure was to bring forth a kind of presence of God that we experience even now today. So that the same presence of God by his spirit can be felt in the Chicago area where my church family is worshiping in the next few hours and can be felt even here in this church family even though we're separated by half the globe. Like Jesus is magnifying his presence by his departure as he completes his mission. And you and I must trust that. I want to make just a couple, couple comments before we move on about this, this, this doctrine of eschatology or the truth, the biblical truths about last things. And too often eschatology turns into debates about some of the specifics about the last few years of human history. But one truth that I think this text points to is that the doctrine of eschatology gives us confidence and purpose in the present. Like Christ knows what he's doing. He has a plan. The one who was in the beginning with God holds all things together, not just at the end, but even in between. There's just a confidence we can have rooted in the plan of God that Christ is pointing to here. A second truth I would say about the doctrine of eschatology is that it, it is the, 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 the truth of eschatology is grounded in the personal presence of God. There's a down payment in Jesus and the Spirit, and soon this fully established home of God is going to happen. Like, do you believe that? Like, do you trust? It can be hard to trust the plans of God. It would be, it'd be hard for the disciples to think it was a good thing for Jesus to leave when they wanted him. They couldn't trust. They couldn't see it. They couldn't imagine the way that the Spirit would magnify the presence of Christ and direct and, and, and incorporate an aspect of Christ's work that they couldn't have even imagined. Do you trust the plan of Christ in your life? Do you trust him in that way? I remember... Uh, at least two of my kids, this was the case, they were so scared of water. And I remember that I, I got into the water, and we did something with our kids, and, and maybe those of you kids did something similar. If we said we were going to do something, we would always do it. We were never going to be like, I'm going to trick you, right? I, none of those. If I say, do you, believe me, I'm telling you, even if I'm playing with them and I'm torturing them with my tickle fingers or something, and, the, and my daughter would say, stop, I, I'll stop. I'll never say I'll stop and then do it again. I want them to see that I am worthy to believe. So I got into the pool with, with two of my kids. And I remember when my middle child, my, my son, Ben, I remember how so terrified of the water he was. And I got into the pool, just a shallow end. I mean, he couldn't have stood in it. He was too small. But I, I, the water was at my waist. I could easily stand in it. And I just held my hands out and I said, now jump. And he's like, daddy, no. Like the water. And he's just, he just, like, he just like panicking. And I said, okay, I said, stop for a sec. Don't just look at the water. Look at me. And do I lie? I- I'm going to catch you. Do you believe I'm going to catch you? Do you think I'm going to pull my hands away and-, and be tricked? Because he'd seen with a relative, an uncle, where an uncle did the same thing. And then guess what the uncle did? Gotcha, right? And the kid goes in the water. He's like, Dad, I've seen that before. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. Here are my hands. Trust me. And it took a few minutes. He would walk to the edge and he'd walk back and he'd walk to the edge. He'd walk back. But finally, he leaped until I almost over exaggerated my catch. Like I literally caught him so only his feet were touching the water, so as to show you can trust me. So within five minutes, he is launching off. I would even, he say, move back, dad, move back. He's even landing in the water himself because he knows the moment he goes under, what will dad do? Dad will just lift him up, grab him by the trousers and yank him above the water. He trusted me, but he wasn't trusting me because of an expertise in swimming or he trusted me as his father. Jesus Christ is saying the same thing as he introduces this kind of introduction to the new covenant, life in Christ through the Spirit, the, the full completion of the mission, mission of Christ here in this earthly ministry. He's like, listen, just look at me. Look at me. Don't look at the water. Don't look at the evil one, the, 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 the work coming. Don't look at the world's response. Don't look at, don't look at your budgets and your money and your gifting and your skill set. Don't look at it. Look at me. Do I lie to you? Can you trust me? Now jump. Now jump. And that same kind of faith, even as as was spoken about this morning, that we need when we give our life to Christ for our salvation, when we trust in his redemptive work, that same kind of trust never stops. You're always trusting in the person of Jesus and the plans of Jesus in your life. And Jesus starts his farewell discourse to say, Trust me. Trust me. Look at me. Look at me. A second truth is stated in verses 5 to 7, and this is the section that has one of the most famous verses in the Bible where Jesus describes himself as the way, the truth, and the life. Let me read 5 to 7 again for us briefly. After that that introduction about trusting Jesus' purpose and plans, Thomas still doesn't quite get it. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Like This is like perfect T-ball set up for Jesus right here. Jesus said to him, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In this scene, all this talk of departure and plans confuses Thomas, who wants to know the way every disciple is supposed to go. Jesus answers, his answer declares emphatically that the way is a who. In one of the most well-known verses, the one I just read for you, John makes several of these I am statements. You see, this one here is the sixth of seven. Seven's a significant biblical number. And in the Gospel of John, seven times, Jesus says, I am, I am. And each of those seven give specific revelations regarding the identity of Christ. And this is one of them. In this one, he calls himself the way, the truth, and the life. We we could have spent all morning on that phrase. But let me just give you a brief explanation of what those are. When Jesus says he's the way, he's saying he is the only mode by by which the Christian existence and participation in God are made possible and accessible. He is the only means. That's it. Jesus accomplishes this by his mission, and we participate by faith and as a way of life. When Jesus says he's the way, he is talking about himself being at the center of what it means to have a gospel-centered life, to be Christ-centered. He's the mode. But then Jesus also calls himself the truth. When he says he's the truth, Jesus is the reality through which Christian... through which Christian existence and participation of God are confirmed and find their meaning. Jesus is the standard for what's real in the world and true about God. Jesus alone makes God known and thus makes reality about life known. Jesus is the plumb line. He's the measuring rod. He's the lens through which the world should be looked at and judged and lived out. Jesus is the way, the mode, and Jesus is the truth. The reality. Finally, Jesus is the life, which means he's the source through which Christian existence and participation in God are founded and given their origin. He's the creator of all things, and he bridges life and death in his person and work. Let me give you a summary of this, of what Jesus says, when He, what he means when he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus destroys the wall that divides humanity from God. In that sense, he's the way. Jesus denies the falsehood that distorts humanity in relation to God. In that way, he's the truth, providing clarity regarding who God is and what life is about. And Jesus defeats the last and greatest enemy of humanity. That's death. In that sense, Jesus is the life. Notice how in, in these verses, 5 through 7, but specifically in 6 and 7, there is great exclusivity, but also in, inclusivity. Exclusivity because Jesus alone mediates. Jesus alone is the way. Jesus alone is the truth. Jesus alone is the life. That is very exclusive. But in another sense, there's an inclusivity, meaning that Jesus provides everything. In everything, does Jesus give meaning, give source, give access to God and his world? Finally, the last few verses, 8 through 14, I summarize it by simply saying this, Jesus is not the means to the end, he's the end itself. The disciples still don't get it. Philip now raises a question. They still separate Jesus from the Father. They, you see that in verse 11. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus says to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? I, I can imagine, to be honest, there's, there's not just a sense of rebuke, but even arguably just brokenness in regard to the lack of understanding that they are still not seeing, even giving warrant for the need of God's Spirit to come and and minister to us and apply these truths. Verse 10, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, And the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. In the person of Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying, in the person of Jesus, the Father could not have been made more known, could not have been shown more clearly. Notice even the mutuality between the Father and the Son in verses 9 and 10. Everything Jesus is, Everything Jesus has said, everything Jesus has done is itself also an expression, not only of and about the Father, but even by the Father himself. The Father's spoken word is most clearly articulated in the person and ministry and life of Jesus. You see how we can be confused in differentiating the persons. And even seeing while we can differentiate the person of the Father and the person of the Son in our understanding of what the doctrine of God is, that the Father and the Son maintain an inseparability in their expression to the work of Jesus. Sometimes you and I can betray an insufficient view of Jesus and therefore of God. Do we trust our own works? And not the works of Jesus. We can we can do that. We can deny Jesus' place when we trust our own works. We can deny the inseparability between what Jesus is doing and what God sees as accomplished when we trust our own works, our own righteousness, over against what Christ accomplished on our our behalf, which we receive by faith. Even in the in the in the Heidelberg that we read this morning, is declaring such truths. Do we trust our own power and success and not the power and success of Jesus Christ? Is our identity found in something else, some kind of other God-connected identity, but not one connected through Jesus would be idolatrous? Do we trust our own pursuit of pleasure and not finding our satisfaction ultimately in Jesus Christ? Do we trust our own plans and not trust in the sovereign plans of Jesus. In those ways, we can still be confused like the disciples who somehow have a God idea or connection that isn't funneled through Christ. That's why I I want to say that Jesus is not just the means to the end, but he's the end himself. That's what it means when we talk about your church as the church has for centuries been Christ-centered, that he's the object and the means of our worship. And when we, are, when we are working and worshiping in Christ, the Father is fully satisfied. And the Spirit is obviously at work. The full Trinitarian God is satisfied when Jesus is the object and the means of our worship. Jesus' rebuke of Philip, Philip's comments turn into an exhortation to taste and see the reality of Jesus. In fact, notice, notice where it kind of goes, especially the, the last few verses of our text this morning. Jesus begins with this statement, truly, truly. And every time you see that in the Gospel of John, Jesus is making an emphatic statement. If we had tone, if we had, turned, if we, if we had like Jesus reading these words himself, I can only imagine every time truly, truly is used, he's being more emphatic. He's stating it more strongly. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Man, could these verses be twisted. If we don't walk through them, the last few minutes of my time with you this morning carefully, Because you could just read these verses on the surface and think, this is great news. I'd like a new car. I'm going to ask it in Jesus' name. I'd like all my tuition paid for. I'd like my business to do better. I'd like the spouse I don't have yet, right? I mean, you uh, name it. You name it and you claim it. You put Jesus' name on it and that sounds really good. That'd be a very wrong reading of these verses. Jesus is inviting his disciples to participate in his powerful works, but please see, they are his works. Greater works, this language of greater works, they're not separate from Jesus as if we're competing, as if Jesus saying, I've done some pretty good miracles, but wait till you see what you guys will do. Not at all. As if any work that any disciple of Jesus does that would do isn't in somehow facilitated by the power of Jesus Christ. Rather than seeing these greater works as separate from Jesus, Jesus is saying that the works of his church are empowered through the Holy Spirit by the risen Christ. He's making a claim of these works himself. They're just magnified because the works are now through his corporate body, the church, but they are still as much the works of Christ. It's unfortunate that many use verses 13 to 14 as an unconditional pledge that every believer's prayer of whatever content will be heard and answered by God. The oft-interpreted language must be understood in the context. So let me make two points about especially verses 13 and 14, and I'm speaking here about prayer. First, the point of verses 13 and 14 is not to suggest that the believer has a new and more powerful resource in God, but that God is not withdrawing from them when Jesus departs. But in fact, because of Jesus' departure, is even more present. So part of that is that this is not saying you get the Father's credit card, go purchase. He's trying to say, I don't want you to think you're losing my powerful presence. In fact, what you're going to find is it's now magnified. But the second point I'm going to make about prayer may be even more important to get. The kind of prayers believers should ask is also taught in these statements. Prayers that should fit the mission of God. Noting verse 2, denoted by the works the believer will do. But it should also fit the character of God. Again, denoted in verse 13 by the phrase, in his name. At least in in my context and maybe here too, people can often think of a name as just like 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 a title or category. In the ancient world, so in the Bible, someone's name was their character and their authority. So when you're praying in the name of Jesus, you're acknowledging and, get this, aligning with his character and his authority. You actually have no right to claim something of yourselves. To be honest with you, prayer is actually a submission to the sovereign character and authority of God in asking the request and therefore then a trusting that his sovereign kingship will make happen what needs to happen. Prayers expecting results outside of these parameters, outside the mission of God or the character of God, are not prayers at all. They're commands. And they're completely outside the bounds of a disciple of Jesus. This final promise is not about the pursuit of self-seeking permission from God, but an invitation to participate in the fullness of life in God through Christ and by the Spirit. When a Christian prays then... They are agreeing to trust not only in God's sovereign and authoritative resources, but get this, they're also agreeing to trust in God's perfect and providential results. That's a very different sounding prayer than what I think often that verses get read. It's me saying when I pray in Jesus' name, I trust, Father, the resources that you have. And get this, Lord, I trust the results. What makes a prayer Christian and not pagan is that God is not used to fulfill the desires of the person who prays. But rather the person who prays submits his or her will to both the power and the purpose of God. A Christian prayer is a paradox in that it seeks from God what what at the same time you're surrendering. Asking from God is therefore also a letting go. It is letting God be God over all things roman eleven thirty six for from him and through him, and to him are all things to him be the glory forever and ever amen. When we were in California, my wife got to meet a woman whose story still uh, strikes me in regard to prayer and trusting Christ for the results. She, th- This woman w- w- was very young, married. She was a youth pastor's wife. They had two, excuse me, three little girls. And literally one day the youth pastor came home, packed his bags, left his wife and three girls for a girl who had just graduated from the youth group. That caused a huge mess in the church. But can you imagine just this young wife with these three little girls. Literally, when he told her this, the three little girls were like in a bunk bed and a little bed in the room. It was night, the dad was gone, and and this young mom was thinking, how am I going to share this tomorrow morning with my three little girls when they're wondering where daddy is? Well, God in his providence worked in so many unique ways in the life of this woman and her three girls. Eventually, a, a, a man came, married this woman, Received as his own, these three little girls. This woman had a gift to sing and, and lead worship, especially for children. She was ministering all over Southern California. She was driving one day to a concert or some kind of a performance. She was in the she was in the front seat driving. This is before GPS, right? So she's got a map out. The, her assistant next to her, three girls in the back seat. Her husband, her, her, her new husband, was already there because he was doing some of the tech stuff. They're driving. They're not necessarily paying attention. A light goes from green to yellow to red. She completely misses that. She goes right into an intersection, and boom, she got hit from the side. Literally, her car is flipped on the side and slams against a light post. She, She's she She panics. She's screaming in the car. She's got blood on her forehead. She looks back. She sees her oldest daughter strapped in the car crying. She sees the middle daughter strapped in a kind of booster seat crying. The youngest daughter is not moving. She's like, no, no. She says, no, God. We've been through so much. No. She gets out of the car, kind of climbs through broken glass. Immediately, lots of cars stopped. An ambulance was already coming down the road. She could hear it. And two ladies walked up. As the ambulance came, the paramedics came. They grabbed this little girl, and they had her on the on the street, and they were doing CPR. And these two Christian older women came up and said, could we pray for you? She's like, yes, please, hurry. And they just kind of stepped to the side, and they're praying, and they're just asking for God to work. And then at one moment, one of the women says, Lord, if it be your will. And literally, the woman put her finger over the woman, the, the lady's mouth. She's like, what did you just say? What did you just say? You say, if it's your will, my little girl is right there. How could that not be God's will? And the moment she said that, she was struck by what she was asking. She's reminded that God is huge. She's reminded that he is king and she is not. That there are things that go beyond our understanding and what we can grasp. What was interesting is these two older women, as this woman tells, they never responded. They didn't have a debate over the theology of prayer. They just, she just stopped praying for a moment as the woman vented for a moment. And then then this mom pulled her finger away and said, I'm sorry, pray. And then this older Christian sister in Christ said the exact same phrase again. Lord, if it be your will, would you heal that little five-year-old girl? When they finished praying, they looked over and they saw the paramedic. The paramedic had just stood up and the the mom could see a tear coming down his eye because he couldn't revive her. But man, that moment just stuck in that mom. God is so big. And it is so easy for me to make God an app for my life. And even just in small things, let alone the big one. Like, I cannot imagine having my little girl on the street being worked on by a paramedic and thinking anything that in any way would contradict her initial thought. It is hard. This Christian paradox of submitting to the name of Christ, meaning not only his character as the bounds of what my prayer looks like, but even his sovereignty as the one who gives the results, and trusting myself in that. But then I can just see Jesus saying, like, I I said to my little boy, look at me. Look at me. I'm in the water. Man, it looks scary around here. But look at me. Jump. I will never lie to you. Trust me. Trust me with everything. Trust me with your money. Trust me with your health. Trust me with your five-year-old little girl. Trust me with your marriage. Trust me with your church. Trust me with your business. Trust me with everything. Jump. That's what Jesus is saying to you. Beginning in John 14, as he starts this farewell discourse to explain the purpose and the completion of his incarnational ministry here, he's like, trust me. So I say to you, my brothers and sisters who live on the other side of the globe from me, but have the same Lord Jesus Christ asking you, just as he asked me and your brothers and sisters in Chicago, trust him. And I say to you this morning, Jesus is everything. Being Christ-centered is not simply a kind of preaching. It's not simply a kind of worship. It's a way of life. For disciples who follow the one who is called the way, the truth, and the life. Father, you are so good to us. We thank you for your goodness and your generosity. And Lord, it is, it is not easy to trust in you. And I'm so thankful that in that first moment, just, just like my little boy walking to first grade or another, my other son wanting to jump in the pool, you knew life was going to be hard. You knew what we were going to face. And so you say, listen, look at me, look at me. Trust me, trust me. Submit all your desires, all the results you would want. Submit them to me. I am worthy to be believed in. Everything God would want to do, everything he has done, everything he will do is through me. Trust me. Father, may my brothers and sisters have a renewed sense of trust from the power of your word and may your spirit be instilling in them an understandability and a believability of the faithfulness of Christ.